Welcome to Superheroes of Science. I'm Stephen. And I'm Sarah. We co-host Science from the Experts. Our guests are professionals doing cutting-edge science right now. They're experts in their field discussing what they know best. So listen up and learn real science from real people. Subscribe now and stay informed of our latest episodes and show your support. Joining us today on Superheroes of Science, we are pleased to welcome Alita Lee. Alita is an associate professor here in the Department of Earth, Atmospheric, and Planetary Sciences at Purdue University. So welcome. Thank you. Hello, everyone. <laughs> Thanks for having me here. <laughs> I'm kind of curious about what we were going to talk about. Yeah. Because uh, it, it, Sarah, was, we, was, we were talking about it a while ago, and weather and traffic patterns. I'm not sure how they would go together. Well, well, like common sense, if there is a pouring rain, what's going to happen? You are probably not going to go out as freely as you would have, right? Like if it were, you know, fried and sunny outside, right? Um, however, it's not that kind of weather traffic correlation that we are interested in as earth scientists. What we are interested in is by looking at how traffic generate waves and that waves propagates through the very shallow earth, then we will look at those waves and figure out what the previous weather condition was. So it's not so much about how many cars are there on the road, but about how strong we're recording these car vibrations coming off the road. Does that make sense? Kind of. So you said waves from the trumpet. So like actual um, waves in the like the Earth? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So if you think about a car passing by on the road, you probably sense the noise from the engine. And if a car is really close, you probably feel the shake coming through your feet as well. Yes. So as seismologist, we measure the vibrations that generated by the car traveling on the road. And as the car moves, it will generate waves constantly, vibrations coming into the seismometers that we will pick up by the roadside. Okay. And then because the distance of the car is changing constantly as it moves, we'll be able to compare how strong the vibration is as the car at the closest location where compare it to it, it, it travels further away. So this comparison actually will tell us about the Earth's properties that is below the road and below the, you know, Earth's surface. When you say Earth's properties, you're talking about down, like if it's how deep the, the bedrock is, what type of substrate is there, medium? Yeah, so we're talking about can uh, it could be the road bed, like uh, we know underneath the pavement there is the base of the road, right? It's well constructed at the beginning of the construction, but you know after years of wear and tear it could deteriorate. Um, but if we were looking at lower frequency waves, that is maybe around you know five hertz and below, these waves can propagate even deeper. Um, up to 10 meters of depth, then that could help us uh, sample the groundwater level. So you imagine, well, here is where the weather comes in. Uh, like imagine precipitation events, then the rain would run off from the road, but part of it will also pass through the medium, you know, through the soil in the top and into the groundwater. 
So we will be able to look at the waves at different frequencies and figure out, you know, below the Earth's surface, what is going on. Uh, is there any change about the pavement? Is there any change in the soil column with different moisture content? And maybe is there, you know, water table changes as a result? Oh, wow. That's a lot more than I thought you could get from a wave from the edge of a card I bought. Well, seismic waves are magical, right? That's what we do as a seismologist. We learned so much about the Earth's structure using these seismic waves. But uh, conventionally, seismologists would be looking at earthquake-induced seismic yeah. waves. They're very energetic, right? Like, you know, the Turkey earthquake has killed so many people. Buildings were shaken down by these very strong waves. So they are very large magnitude, but they are rare and they happen at, you know, isolated locations. Mm -hmm. So these are the conventional seismic waves, seismologists to study. We are looking at higher frequencies and we are looking at what we call ambient seismic waves. So these are ever constant happening. It's, you know, if you think about the roads outside of Purdue, there's always traffic, right? It's constant, it's never quiet. Even in the middle of the night, there's always cars passing by. So these are the ambient and seismic waves. Traditionally has been seen as noise for the earthquake seismic waves. But what we learned is that they actually contain a lot of information about the subsurface and they actually complement the earthquake seismic waves very well. Um, because say at Purdue, we do not have a lot of local earthquake close to us, which is a blessing, of course. But uh, when the faraway earthquakes travel to Purdue, they become very low frequency and they have a very limited propagation angle. So that means, well, we probably only image very large structures below Purdue, like on the order of tens or hundreds of kilometers. So this is very, very important for our scientists to understand what's going on at large scale. However, if we want to look at higher resolution, small scale features, like whether there's a pothole developing or sinkhole developing below the pavement, those are the higher frequency seismic waves that we will have to look for. And cars are perfect sources for these type of waves. So, wait about. So, when you, you get to the point that you'll just have seismometers on along like all the highways, be able to predict when before a pothole actually happens? Well, I think if we can scale this up, yes. Uh, what we have done, the study um, has come out is in Singapore, where we put seismometers at different locations in different environments by different types of road. And also inside the park, we can, we, you know, it's a public space and we can put one seismometer there just listening to the environment. So we can help monitor different locations using just these seismometers. Though those seismometers are very easy to deploy. Um, but if we want to do what you described, like long tens or hundreds of kilometers, miles of highways, um, we can use you know a seismometer array 
or we will have to be more innovative, try to use uh, what we are call, calling distributed acoustic sensors. These are fiber optical cables that we can use and we can turn them into seismometers as well. So, oh, really? Yes. And um, this is a newer type of technology where uh, they really effectively turning hundreds of miles of existing telecommunication fibers into sensors for seismologists. And, um, and these sensors are really sensitive and they are, they can generate data almost continuously every 10 meters, every 20 meters along the way. Wow. And it's a huge amount of data for a store, but that's really cool that they're already existing and there's a way to use those. Yeah. We actually have the equipment and what we call an interrogator. So basically sends out uh, a light wave okay, through the fiber. And then by looking at the reflected light, we'll be able to measure where the vibration is, how strong the vibration is along hundreds of kilometers of fiber. So some of the data that you're collecting, how, what, what can we do? Like what, how do, how is that data used? Is it more um, learning more about what's what's under, or is it more discovering new sources of, of groundwater, for example, or how, how is that data being? Well, we're, we're doing both, actually. Uh, as geophysicists, seismologists, we know traditionally how we would process the data based on hundreds of years of experience of working with earthquake seismic waves. But now we're looking at higher frequency waves coming from different types of sources. We are designing new algorithms, new signal processing techniques to try to extract subsurface information about the structure, about the groundwater, about soil moisture components, and things like that. At the same time, because of the explosion of the data volume, there are so many other information that we didn't know we could record or we could find out in the data. So there is definitely a mining, a data mining and processing that. So I give you an example. Just uh, last month, not very far away from us in Binoy, there is a wind turbine and a cell down. In cell, yeah. It has been there for more than a decade. The wind farm has been constructed more than a decade ago. It was working perfectly fine. But one, I don't know what triggered that event, it started to tilt and then it eventually fell out of the world. Just so happened that we had a seismometer about 500 meters away from that fallen turbine. So we got the message from Illinois Geological Survey people, uh, our very good collaborator, uh, Dr. Andy Stolf, and he, and we were like, okay, we just harvested the data two days ago. Let's take a look at the data and see if we reported that event. It turned out we did. We did record that toppling event of the wind turbine. And uh, we saw a huge spike of vibration in our data. And uh, we are looking into the data right now to see if we could find any precursors of this toppling bed to see if we could alert the operator of the wind farm before they notice a panic. 
that is, you know, obvious, obvious big role, certainly. Now, now you said these are uh, acoustic seismic waves, is what you, you've called them. Now, when, when I think of seismic, I'm thinking of plate tectonics only. And so, what exactly is seismic? Yeah, well, nowadays we refer seismic waves as very generally just elastic mechanical waves that's traveling in the earth. So it could be the acoustic waves that, you know, the sound waves that I'm speaking, generating right now. It could also be the shakes, right? Like if I uh, put down my foot very heavily on the floor, you will feel the shakes. So those are the shear waves usually that um, that are stronger. Yeah, so when we now refer seismic waves, it's very broadly defined. It's not just generated by earthquakes anymore or tectonics or volcanic events anymore. It's It could be from anything, from your walking. We can actually detect uh, every single footstep of yours from the seismometers, and we can count how many steps you take every minute, and we can estimate a rock speed of, of your walking. That's a lot of data. Yes. And it was considered noise before. Absolutely, yeah. When did we start? When did I say we? You know, I'm not doing it, but when did y'all start looking at the noise to see? Oh, well, what's actually in it? Yeah. So I think this this actually started maybe slightly more than two decades ago. Actually, from the earthquake uh, seismology community, they started to look at these background noise, and they found that the low-frequency background noise was saturated by these ocean waves that's happening, although very lower impact compared to big earthquakes, but it's happening constantly. So they managed to get out these uh, stationary or constant happening events from uh, the Earth, and we will be able to use that information to image the structure below us. And uh, when I started in Singapore, uh, the Singapore city, city state, is a very small space. It doesn't really care, you know, much deeper below 100 meters. That's but up shallow, they want to know, you know, what's there in the subsurface. Is there space they can use? Because the city has a very limited net space. So, so I started uh, to look into the urban ambient voice, and then that's where we are doing a lot of, you know, traffic. We're doing pedestrian. We're doing weather events. So, yeah, these really becomes like let's look into the noise part of the data and turn that noise into information and keep mining the data to extract more information about it out. So would like a, a large storm front, would you actually be able to read that to your data then as a storm front? Because I know some of these, especially in intense stuff. Right. And it's better off. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we haven't done that, but there are studies out there. So they had seismic networks inside a valley or uh, across different valleys, and they can exactly see how the storm front goes across the whole array. Yeah, just by looking at, think about all the vibrations that we feel, all the sound that we hear, what we hear 
uh, the size seismometers nowadays are very sensitive. They can pick up those vibrations as well. Sometimes at the lower frequencies below 20 hertz that we don't hear, they hear much, much better. So, yeah, so there are tons of information in this. Um, this is actually a, a space where we feel the subsurface, right? The Earth scientists are usually looking at, or seismologists are usually looking at the subsurface, but it interfaces with what's happening above the surface in the weather, in the atmosphere, and also even in society as well. How deep are these sensors? course, the, the seismic sensors that you're doing to be able to get that kind of deprivation. Yeah. You have to like drill really far down and bury these or? Not necessarily. So nowadays we use very small nodules as ulnars and they are, um, I don't know how, what's what's the size of inches, but maybe eggies. Yeah. yeah, like um, 20 to 30 centimeters. That's what I would say. And uh, we would just you know, the top of the sensor would be slightly buried, maybe by five centimeter of soil. Oh. And then, yeah, it's very easy to deploy nowadays. And uh, it's nodal. It's much lighter compared to a previous generation of seismometers where you really need to dig a hole and place it nicely and uh, a level play and, and, and most likely previous generation want to deploy them on the bedrock, whereas the newer generation can really deploy it anywhere you want. Uh, as long as there is walk, we usually deploy on the turf grass by the road or someone's backyard. And you know, these are all the places that we can do deployments. And that's in addition to, you said, starting to use some of that fiber optic. And this already, that's already there, I guess. Yeah, so... The fiber optics are um, also another very exciting opportunity for us because uh, there's already a lot of these infrastructure out there. And uh, and there's also, if you think about for every connection that we're sending out, and like our computers, there's backup fibers there, meaning these fibers are there just in case, right, for insurance purposes. They are actually not in use, as me speak. So these are the fibers that we, we can take advantage of for scientific science. Yeah. So we use those unused wires and use the fibers and not interrupting with any existing communication at all and, and turn those fibers into sensors. And then we can do, you know, a lot of attacks as to how to then. How big of the computer you have to Analyze that much data? That's a very good question. So we were doing some calculations. We are capable of generating terabytes of data per day. A hard day. Yes. Therefore, it's so we can, if you, if we think about this is a amount of data that we record in terms of numbers, but then how much information are we extracting from this data? And so we need streaming, data streaming, we need real-time signal processing, we need a space to archive all the data because there are information that we know how to extract. There are also a huge amount of information that we don't know what it is yet. 
So we want to keep those raw data there as well, such that maybe a new student come up with a new idea that we will be able to find the information out of these raw data. Yeah, we definitely need high performance computing. We need huge storage space for the data. And we also need to be very careful about what we want or uh, to avoid, you know, generating, you know, too much data and uh, for the students for us to handle. So how much, um, thinking of geologists, I mean, y'all walk around and play in the soil. But uh, how much computing do you have to prove coding, the programming, does your group have to know? A lot. <laughs> so I find myself a lot. I, we have a lot of common language with uh, computer scientists, electrical engineers, and uh, mathematicians, actually, because we do signal processing. We do algorithm de development as well. Um, we actually are not as, I don't know, similar to geologists in a way, because um, we do touch the rocks, we do touch the soil, but it's not like uh, I can tell what the rock is just by looking at it as our, you know, geologist friends. Well, that's, it's really amazing what you're doing. I mean, obviously, but it, it sounds like a lot of it is to actually apply it. It's going to be down the road ways before we have enough understanding of that data and the infrastructure to be able to collect the data on a continual basis. Yeah. And so by, so down the road, we'll be able to real-time know where waddle to, waddle, water tables are yes. and, and be able to predict things like, you know, wind turbines falling, yes. even pop down to the potholes. Yes. And so I did so many, that's a, it's, it's really cool and exciting yeah. to think that that's coming down the line, that you're working on that now. And, uh, but uh, how far down the line do you think it is? Well, some of the applications we think it's very close to the application phase. Because, say, for example, uh, monitoring the water table. Uh, we designed the algorithm to be very fast. We design a streaming method to take the data in real time and just process it up on the fly. So that part, that small function, can be applied right away. So my students worked on the Singapore data. Now I'm working with two undergraduate students, one from our department and another one in China, out Tongji University. So they form an international team working on data that will record it in and in the future in China. So these really, once the algorithm is developed, they can be applied up different data apart from, you know, all for the places. So that application, I think, is very, very close to deployment. Whereas, you know, prediction, for example, uh, we are still looking for the precursors in the winter might fall in handling event. Well, and that needs a lot of collaboration with structural engineers of the wind turbine construction company and, and see, you know, what are we seeing? Are we really seeing what we think we are seeing? I think that's Yeah, I think that is a bit further from application. Well, the only thing I'd ask is if I'm running around one of your audience of sensors, 
Don't tell people how slow I am. How can we just keep that off the voice, Cloud? It's all fast. But thank you for coming and sharing. Then it's, I mean, it's, wow, wow, you're doing the science of the future. Yeah, I know. That's that's what's so cool. Yeah, I feel like uh, we could put the students in the perspective of the society, right? This is almost the first time I was doing something that my parents could understand it, right? Previously, if I were saying I'm doing everything I'm doing over the development, it's just so far away from them. But now if I'm talking about cars, traffic, I'm talking about water table, they all understand it. So that's where I'm excited. That's where I feel if the students also get that experience, they will be able to communicate with the public better. And um, yeah, I think that gives the students more motivation to work out moments like this too. Right. So thank you for your time. We're in first Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Science from the Experts from Purdue University's Superheroes of Science. If you like this episode, subscribe, give us a positive view, and share the love. Boiler up! Hammer down!